ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Oh my God, how did I spend all of that money? (laughs) That is the title of my next guest's PhD thesis that she discussed this week at a major academic conference in Melbourne looking at Taylor Swift. As the pop star prepares to play in Melbourne tonight, governments will be no doubt licking their lips over the hundreds of millions of dollars she will bring to the state economy. But that money has to come from somewhere. Merch and ticket sales, accommodation costs, transport and food expenses. It's something paid for by the fans during a cost of living crisis. Dr Georgia Carroll has a PhD in sociology from the University of Sydney looking at the commodification of fandom communities. And she joins me in the studio and she voiced that. Welcome. <laughs> Good morning. I love that. Did the inspiration for your thesis come from lived experience? It did. Um, I've been a fan my whole life um, and I kind of had noticed that often when when we talk about people who are big fans or, you know, particularly dedicated fans, we were actually talking about fans who had spent a lot of money and as somebody who, you know, as a student, I'd often been like, well, I can't afford this concert or I can't afford to go to this event. It was like, well, that doesn't mean the people that are going are more of a fan. And so I decided to explore both what makes fans want to spend lots of money, but also how they feel when they can't and they are left out of these big moments that then are in the news or that everyone's talking about. That's a really interesting idea because Mm. it's true. And there are those who have their Swift tickets at the moment and those who don't. And some of that is financial and some of it is lack of access. They just couldn't get them, right? So your thesis explores the spending of some of the fans. Tell me what you heard about supernatural fans and their credit card spending. Yeah, so alongside um, Taylor Swift fans, I studied fans of the TV show Supernatural and the big thing in their fandom is going to conventions to meet the actors Um, and that can cost thousands of dollars per event. And some of the fans I talked to discussed the fact that they were willing to go into credit card debt and go thousands of dollars in debt uh, to be able to achieve this goal of meeting the actors, to have the experience, to be part of the community. But the way they justified it to me was kind of like saying, you know, other people save and spend and might go into debt to have these big like European holidays or to do some kind of other big thing that is more, you know, accepted within society. Uh, But they didn't want to do that. This was their one big thing. And they were willing to make the sacrifices. They were willing to go into the debt. And they were, you know, willing to go without other things because the event and the fandom was what made them happy in their life. And it made them happy? It did. It did. It really, they discussed, um, you know, notions of identity and meaning, the friendships they'd made. And, you know, Supernatural and Taylor are quite similar in that they've been around since um, the year 2005, 2006. And so these people have had these relationships with the object of fandom for a long period of time. And over that period of time, you do really develop a sense of connection that's kind of deeper than you might if you just occasionally listen to somebody on Spotify or tuned into a TV show every now and again. Of course, you presented at this week's Swift Posium, which is a brilliant, smart, (laughs) can I say, idea to really capitalise on Taylor Swift's arrival. Organisers put out a note reminding fans in town for the tour that while this was a friendly affair, it was a critical academic look at Taylor Swift. How did that play out in your keynote? Yes. So my keynote, I mean, I'll preface this by saying I love Taylor. I'm going to the show tonight. I've loved her tonight. Yes. Uh. (laughs) I've loved her since I was 14. Um, But my 
My speech was quite critical of her marketing practices. It was quite critical of the way she creates this fandom where there are haves and have-nots based on this idea of her giving them attention. Um, and it was great because I was a bit nervous because obviously there was a, over 100 academics there who we all were fans. But at the end, you know, everyone kept coming up to me and being like, it was great to hear somebody who was willing to be so critical while admitting to being a fan and to kind of see past just the, oh, we love her, to explore the concepts with like more nuance because it is very nuanced. You can love her and also critique the fact that she's put out 40 merchandise collections in recent years or that she releases eight versions versions of her folklore album and wants fans to buy them all. That doesn't make her music any less powerful or make, you know, a fan want to go to the show any less and experience, you know, kind of the phenomenon that is Taylor Swift. But there is a lot of room for critique. And it wasn't just my speech that kind of covered that. It was really great across the two days to engage with scholars from every discipline, from kind of medical sciences to law, to gender studies, to archaeology, and um, how we can look at Taylor in a more kind of nuanced, critical way. So she's exploiting her fans. Look, it's a big word, one I have used before. It's She lures her fans with this promise of attention. Historically, she um, handpicks fans from social media or concerts to meet. She's done this less since the pandemic started. But the idea was that you have to get her attention and get her notice. And her marketing team will do things like when she releases an album or she releases merchandise, if you take a screenshot of your receipt and you upload it, they will reshare that. They will praise you. And it kind of creates this environment where they've trained fans to be like, well, this is what a good fan looks like. This is what gets attention. This is what's going to get me in front of Taylor. And that's going to the concerts. That's buying lots of merchandise. It's sharing merchandise. And it's always being positive about her. So they, in a way that a lot of fandoms haven't been, they have trained the fans to play within these lines in the hopes of being deemed like this worthy fan um, and getting to meet her. Okay. So how do you deal with the, your complex feelings about Taylor Swift? Because when you describe it that way, it doesn't <laughs> feel nice. No. And, you know, I spent five years writing my thesis and throughout that time there were like ebbs and flows and times where I just wanted nothing to do with her. But the thing about Taylor especially for, you know, I'm almost 30, so somebody who's my age, late 20s, early 30s, we grew up with her in a lot of ways. When I was 14 and became a fan, Fearless had come out. It has the song 15 on it, and it's all about, you know, first crushes in high school, and then you evolve and she releases 22, and that's around the time you're turning 22. So you kind of have this big connection where as a teenager you kind of felt like she was reading your diary and reflecting it back mm, at you. That's right. And so economics aside... You listen to her music and it feels special, it feels personal, and it's tied to so many big memories and moments you, that you have with your friends, that you have with your life. Like, I have so many fond memories at concerts and, you know, playing music at parties. And so it's that personal level that I think you sometimes do have to separate from the business of Taylor Swift because, yeah, it can be easy to get cynical about the business. Mm. How problematic is the way so-called Swifties, her fans, target people online they deem critical of Taylor Swift or even other celebrities she has reportedly have had feuds with, even her ex-boyfriends they cancel? Yeah, it's, it's complicated and we see this in a lot of fandoms. It's not unique to the Swifties, but it's all tied to this idea of supporting her. So it's coming from maybe a misguided good place, but like they're, they're trying to help her. But yeah, we do see like there was a lot of negative negativity last week. 
uh, when there was all the stories about the private jets and they just were coming and trying to, like, counter it and attack anybody that spoke out. And, you know, sometimes that comes with calling people not a fan and telling them if they're willing to criticise, they should stop being a fan because that's not what being a fan is about. And we're really seeing it at the moment um, with the new album, The Tortured Poets Department. People think it's going to be, like, quite a mean breakup album to her ex-boyfriend. And so the fans have turned on him and are really being mean about him, even though we don't know what happened. And so... It, it's not great, but it's also, you know, we we see it in a lot of fandoms and it's not as, you know, dangerous as we've seen in, like, the Nicki Minaj fandom recently where they have turned to, like, criminal action. So at least, yeah. <laughs> at least Taylor's fans are just kind of, you know, angrily tweeting at people, which they shouldn't do, but... <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's where it is. Okay. You've actually uh, likened Taylor Swift's fandom to a prison system. Talk to me about this. Yeah, so this is one of the things I t- discussed in my thesis. So Taylor is known for uh, lurking on social media. They say that's like a, rep- a thing in her fandom that she could be watching you at any time. And there is this uh, sociological theory called the panopticon, which is um, in the prison system, um, a form of surveillance where prisoners are, could be being watched at any time, but they don't know if they're being watched at that exact moment. So they always act as if they are. And that's what her fans do. They don't know if Taylor is watching at that specific moment. But because she could be, they always are on their best behaviour. They're always showing their merch. They're always being positive about her because they don't want her to spot them doing something that would, like, put them out of the running to be met or to have her, like, see them and go, oh, well, that person's not a fan. So she's like, yeah, really train this behaviour. And, yes, it's extreme to compare it to a prison system, but it's this exact mode of surveillance and getting them to behave. That's fascinating as a sort of idea to explore. I just want to put this to you, which is totally because you're a fan of her actual music. Uh, We've got a text message from someone and she's really being genuine about not getting it. And I've got a lot of listeners in different, you know, age groups and and I feel like there is a cohort that just do not get it and a little confused about it. So I'm going to ask you, Mm -hmm. can you please explain to me what Taylor Swift's attraction is? I've looked at her videos and find her music unremarkable. Why the hype? I want to understand, says Marie. I think for a lot of people, you almost had to be a teenager at a specific point in her career. And that's not to say she doesn't have older fans and fans who have become fans, you know, in their adulthood, especially uh, when she released Folklore and Evermore and they were kind of different albums that people connected to. But for so many of her fans, uh, like myself, we were... We were younger teenagers when she started releasing and, you know, even though now we're in our late 20s, our mid-30s, we have professional careers, we have families, we still have that connection that we had to her as a teenager where she was expressing the big emotions that we were feeling um, and she was kind of like a voice you could connect to and a lot of her music is really beautifully written, like All Too Well, the 10-minute version, that is like a piece of genius songwriting. Uh, some of her songs are a bit sillier and like Me is just a bit of a, a bit of a joke song but like she has this range and, you know, the album that's coming out in April is her 11th album and it's kind of like across that period feels like there's something for everybody to connect to on some level. You know, even if you've never experienced a heartbreak or, you know, some of those big themes, it's like she sings to the human experience. And I think especially if you were a teenager and kind of going through that emotional turmoil as she was reaching her peak, that really cements the bond. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of of describing it. 
Georgia, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you me. have the best night ever. Oh, my God, I'm probably going to cry the just, whole time. Just don't buy anything. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> just be on strike. Yeah, Don't well, get sucked in. Mm, well, the hoodies are $120, which oh. I think is a bit out of my budget at the oh, moment. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Dr Georgia Carroll has a PhD in sociology from the University of Sydney looking at the commodification of fandom communities and the contradictions that we all live with as we try to deal with our complex feelings of fandom. You're listening to RM breakfast. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.